The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. And finally, tonight, under the heading of Believe It or Not, Carol Johnson with the story of the man who would be mayor. Maximilian Arturo came to market to sell himself today, but no one seemed to be buying. San Francisco is known for the unusual, from hippies to earthquakes to trolley cars, but nothing has so captured the public's fancy as the curiosity of a man who dares to buck the system. They laughed at Ross Perot. They still do. Of course, they're laughing. Look at the history of this place. Hundreds of years ago, women got sick and tired of watching men go off to war and kill each other, so they took over. There's no war anymore, no violent crime. That's beside the point. Then what is the point? Face it, Professor, we are all tiptoeing around this great big ego trip of yours, but the fact is, things are not so bad here. You are just upset because you feel devalued and overlooked because of your sex, something that I have felt most of my life. No society is perfect, but maybe we ought to stop and think for a change before we go trying to upset the whole apple cart. Have you finished, woman? The truth of the matter is, Miss Wells, you are in an unaccustomed position of influence and you don't wish to see it threatened. He's impossible. Maybe you can talk some sense into him. After all, I am only a woman. Yes. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, January, actually February 5th, 2015. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we'll be with you from now until noon. No, it's not right wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to our show today, where you can always write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org with your comments and suggestions, and we certainly had some hot shows lately, and we're going to be doing a follow-up on that, and Robert... Uh, Don't forget to follow us mm-hmm. on uh, Facebook, like us on Facebook, rather, and follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to us on iTunes. It's always great for a, a commute. Absolutely. Um, you know, Robert, the very first thing I heard this morning when I woke up and turned on my radio was, of all things, the voice of Megan Walker. And the first words I hear out of her mouth are, quote, it's about a man with incredible wealth and power who uses a woman, end quote. And she was ta- calling for a boycott, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what has Bill Cosby done now? More like a man-cot. Yeah. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> but it wasn't about Bill Cosby. Now the latest target is this movie that's coming out on Valentine's Day called Fifty Shades of Grey, which happens to be written by a woman and is very popular among women. Considered a very racy movie, and uh, of course, uh, Megan's opposed to this because of it fits that pattern that we've been talking about so often on um, the whole issue of what we brought up last week with the concept of affirmative consent. Now last week we featured guest uh, FP leader Paul McKeever, Freedom Party leader, who introduced us to this coming bizarre concept of affirmative consent, which is not something new, but something now slowly pushing its way into more of the public view. Even so, most of the public isn't too sure of what it's really seeing. 
Now, the issue's beginning to surface, Robert. I'm almost feeling like we had a bit of a lead on this. And Paul's been keeping us up to date with recent developments, which include, but are not limited to, some of these following stories. One of them appeared January 28th in the National Post. Robin Urbach, on Ontario schools will start teaching sexual consent. Good, she says. And this is interesting. She writes, according to Canadian law, being intoxicated renders one unable to consent to sexual activity. It doesn't matter if the individual offers verbal consent, agreed to sex previously, or if he or she decided to get drunk on his or her own accord. By law, it could still be considered sexual assault. There are gray areas, of course, including determining when someone becomes intoxicated and the question of what happens when both parties are unable to consent. A couple of drunks having sex. Who consented? Who didn't, right? Tough questions to answer. Who raped whom? Yeah. <laughs> While the law's actual bearing on most people's lives might be minimal, the Ontario government has decided to start teaching it in schools anyway. This week, Premier Kathleen Wynne, flanked by two 13-year-old Toronto students, announced that schools across the province would begin teaching about consent and healthy relationships as part of an overhaul to Ontario's sexual education curriculum. We're asking for it to teach a lot more than just asking for permission, said Leah Valente, one of the students behind the petition to have cons a consent culture included in the provincial curriculum. Have you ever heard of such a thing, Robert? It's understanding what is a clear, enthusiastic, affirmative yes and what consent looks and sounds like, end quote. Those opposed to Kathleen Wynne's new sex ed curriculum have and will continue to claim that schools should teach reading, writing, and math and leave discussions about sex to parents and their children. That's fine, and those parents who wish to have their children exempted from classroom discussions should surely be given that opportunity, but there is certainly just as much value in teaching students the legal boundaries of their contemporary weekend activities as there is in teaching students the rules of calculus for future use. Whether teens change their behavior will obviously be up to them, but at the very least they'll be offered the relevant information, and isn't that what education should be all about, she writes. Now, interestingly, Paul has already responded to her and gave her a warning in the sense of, he says, he wrote her and said, I'm all in favor of teaching students about consent, but I'm writing because your column today doesn't address something important about what might be the proposed lessons being taught and at what age, as I've found since it's not a might be. Uh, my concern for the as-yet-not-revealed policy is that it will attempt not to teach students merely that one must have consent, but to teach them a destructive cultural Marxist radical feminist approach to determining the presence or absence of consent. And then Paul shared his essay, Simon Says, the one that we discussed last week with her back and invited her to consider it before Wynne manages to pass off radical Marxist feminism as the mere teaching of consent. <coughs> In another article, uh, February 2nd, this is all recent stuff. Durham, Durham Region News Report appearing in the Northumberland News. Writer Gillian Fallert leads with the headline, Education Minister Says New Sex Ed Curriculum Must Be Crystal Clear on, on Issue of Consent, and writes that Education Minister Liz Sandals is defending how the province consulted with parents on its new sex ed curriculum, saying surveying one parent per school was the best way to get a range of options. In November, about 4,000 Ontario parents were given a chance to fill out an online survey about the new curriculum, which will be implemented across Ontario this fall. The 1998 sex ed curriculum currently used in Ontario schools is the most outdated in the country and doesn't address current topics such as cyberbullying, same-sex relationships, and sexting. 
Informed consent is another area that's missing but will be included in the new version due to a recent request by Premier Kathleen Wynne. She made the announcement January 26th after meeting with two grade 8 girls from Toronto who have lobbied for a consent culture to be reflected in the new document. The We Give Consent campaign has so far garnered more than 38,000 signatures on an online petition. The curriculum needs to teach what clear, enthusiastic, and affirmative consent is and what it looks and sounds like, reads an excerpt from the petition by Leah Valenti and Tessa Hill. We want health education that teaches our peers yes means yes, that shares with our peers that affirmative consent is an enthusiastic yes please between two people. We want education that shows us that there are many ways to say no, that educates young people that silence is not consent and that no means no. It's right out of that Saturday Night Live clip we played last week, Robert. It's literally what they're calling for here. Ms. Wynn said the new curriculum is expected to address issues of consent as early as grade one by teaching students how to listen to each other and read facial expressions and body language. Grade one, Robert. We grade need one. Grade one. We need to make sure the informed consent piece of healthy relationships is absolutely crystal clear to both boys and girls, Ms. Sandals said. And then again, Paul again wrote to her and made sure that they, they're aware of what is meant by this a term, term affirmative consent, which is, uh, you know, not real consent as we discussed last week. Now this one was a really good commentary. <clears throat> this appeared February 3rd in the Reason.com archives. How affirmative consent threatens liberty and the trouble with mandating yes means yes on college campuses by Robert Carley. And he writes, on January 20th, I didn't even know this, Robert, most college students in New York and California started their spring semesters under a new regime of sexual policing called affirmative consent. Under these policies, any student who cannot prove that he obtained ongoing, unambiguous consent to any sexual activity will automatically be guilty of violating campus sexual assault policies. How do you prove that? How do you prove anything like that? that? The point is that you can't. That's exactly where they put you. And that's, um, that leads us to um, he said, she said, and she must always be believed. Yes, she who must be obeyed. <laughs> always must be believed. <laughs> that's yeah. right. Uh, you know, last fall, Governors Jerry Brown and Andrew Cuomo ordered state schools in California and New York to adopt affirmative consent rules. On January 17th, Governor Cuomo announced that an initiative to make yes-mean-yes yes policies binding on all private colleges, or colleges in New York State. Affirmative consent laws turn normal interactions into sexual offenses. That's so right. They establish a presumption of guilt and strip the accused of due process protections. They are also being used by campus activists who selectively prosecute students with unpopular viewpoints on controversial issues. You know, I can't tell you how much this whole scenario fits into the Cosby case that we were looking at before, Robert. Affirmative consent is part of a three-year campaign to make campuses safer by rescinding the due process rights of students. Even supporters of affirmative uh, consent admit that it violates due process rights. When asked how an innocent student could prove affirmative consent under the statute, Democratic Assemblywoman Bonnie Lowenthal said, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> oh, man. Ezra Klein, editor-in-chief of Vox, admits that under affirmative consent, quote, too much counts as sexual assault, end quote, and that innocent students will be branded as rapists. 
yet he, he supports it anyway because, quote, men need to feel a cold spike of fear, end quote. New York's Jonathan Chait calls Klein's strategy of false convictions to strike fear into the innocent a conception of justice totally removed from the liberal tradition. Colleges and universities are governed by raw power and run roughshod over the rights of their students have lost their moral authority to form the kinds of virtuous, self-governing citizens that are vital to America's future. And that was written by Robert D. Carley, partial, I didn't read the whole thing, who's a professor of theology at the King's College in Manhattan. And I think that's a keeper. He just hit, hit every, every major point right on the head. You know, enough said on those points. Now, you know, our show last week um, has been given a little bit of extra attention thanks to its being promoted on sites like Kathy Shadle's Blazing Cat Fur, and she, of course, has been both a guest and a host on past broadcasts of this show, and also thanks to the show's promotion uh, to Freedom Party members. Got some very interesting feedback, portions of which we hope to share with our listeners on a future broadcast once the time is right for that. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. I continue to maintain my earlier and developing contention that Bill Cosby is more the victim and less the perpetrator in the controversy surrounding the allegations against him. Now, exactly how I began to arrive at this conclusion, because this is all part of the affirmative consent campaign, I will discuss on the other side of our upcoming soundbite taken from a very, very recent episode of Castle. Now, before listening to this, I want you to consider the Cosby parallels. What they're doing in this show is a complete fiction. It's about a guy who's accused of murder. But when I listen to all the parallels, there's the presumption of guilt. There's the have-truths, facts versus context. There's a fact that truth won't matter because if you're convicted in the court of public opinion, how can you defend yourself even with the truth? And of course, there's the idea that the media's never run with it because there's nothing there, which is why we haven't heard about these Cosby complaints that were 30, 40, 50 years old, because there's nothing there. And of course, being framed, he's a respected high-profile person. And the alleged crime took place at a party over a decade and a half ago. This is all in part of this clip that we're about to hear. And of course, he has a alibi and still doubted, all of which turns out to be an orchestrated conspiracy against the accused. Does that sound familiar? Our first conspiracy example is fictional, drawn from this recent episode of Castle. And on the other side, when we return, our second conspiracy example is a real one, in which both Robert and I were involved back in the 90s. Uh, does art imitate life, or is it vice versa, or is it the other way around? I'm not too sure, but let's listen into this. A cigarette butt. Is that supposed to mean something? It was recovered at the scene of Shayna Baker's murder. Preliminary DNA tests indicate it's yours. That's not possible. It is because you were there. You killed her, Mr. Elliot. That's ridiculous. I didn't even know her. Why would I kill her? Because she knew the truth about what happened that night at the party, about Jeff Whalen's murder. We know that she tracked you down. And when she confronted you, you had her silenced. Okay, listen. Okay, she did track me down. And she practically accosted me in front of my office the other night. And I told her the truth, all right? That, that I, yes, I was in the room the night that Jeff fell, but I did not push him. It was an accident. It's in the report. Then why did your father cover it up? Because he knew that the truth wouldn't matter. That I would be convicted in the court of public opinion just for being there. And that my political career would be over before it ever started. So you swept it under the rug, and then when Shana came along... Shana, do you, do you think she was the first? 
Listen, my enemies have been circling around this story for years, and you want to know why the media's never run with it? Because there's nothing there. Until now. <laughs> I'm being set up. Mr. Elliot. Shana said somebody contacted her and told her that I pushed Jeff. They urged her to look into the truth, and then, then she ends up dead. And you find this at the scene? You're claiming someone is framing you. I am a criminal prosecutor. Do you honestly think that I would be stupid enough to leave a piece of evidence like this behind? Look, I made my name fighting corporate greed. And my political ambitions are, are no secret to anyone. This, don't you see, this, this is the perfect way for my enemies to destroy me. Okay. There's only one problem with that theory, Mr. Elliot. In order to frame you, a person would need to know that you were there at that party 15 years ago and know that Shayna Baker had just come from seeing you an hour earlier. Maybe there is a simpler explanation. There is no conspiracy against you. You killed her. <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't have killed her because I was at a fundraiser that night. Yeah, we checked into that. You got there at 11 o'clock. Shayna was dead by 10.30. I swear to you, I am being set up. I'm sorry. I'm afraid. I have no other choice but to arrest you for the Wait. murder. He's telling the truth. Spalding Elliot is not our killer. Castle, what are you doing? Oh, proving this man's innocence. Castle? Mr. Elliot, if I may. Please, no! Oh. See, I remember reading in a profile of Mr. Elliot that he has a severe allergy to long-haired ah. dogs. Ah. And the victim's apartment was covered in dog hair. Exactly. Ah. This seemed like the kind of man ah. who could wait in Sheena's apartment, ah. let alone smoke a cigarette while he did so. Ah. Please. No, but, I mean, he could be faking the whole thing. Please, get him out of here before the hives start! Oh. I think that ship has sailed. Okay, yeah, definitely not faking that. Here is Spalding Elliot arriving at the fundraiser the night of Shayna's death. Note the lack of red splotches on his face. There's no way that he came straight from her apartment looking like that. Which means Ryan nailed it before. This is a conspiracy. Ryan, you played the C card? Well, I mean, uh, you weren't around. Somebody had to step up. <laughs> that was funny. Played the C card. We did a show on conspiracies once, didn't we, Robert? So they say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're weird today, I'll tell you. You know, this whole thing reminds me, the, the Cosby issue and how I got into it, it reminded me so much of my experience regarding my defense of a uh, London landlord before an Ontario Human Rights Tribunal, a case that we won on the basis of taking the already available public material which is basically what's out there in the court of public opinion, which at that time was newspaper clippings and stories because there was no internet to go to to get this kind of stuff, and connecting the dots to put the story together. And it was just like the same thing. You know, the allegations then, Mr. I don't want to repeat the landlord's name, but the landlord's a racist. Should we allow racist landlords to take advantage of minorities? He's a slum landlord. And... I mean, the, the allegations against the poor landlord there were as outrageous and provocative as anything levied against Cosby. And I am, who, who am not a lawyer, won my case before the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal, basically on the basis of putting all those allegations into a proper context so that the greater story could be discovered. And 
the conspiracy uncovered, and that's what we found. And that story was astounding. The people behind the conspiracy proved to be some of London's finest. I mean, past city councillor and United Church Minister Susan Eagle, the London Free Press and many of its reporters, the fake complainant, Chipeng Hom, who was recruited for the purpose of trying to take over the landlord's buildings for municipal social housing. That's what the whole conspiracy was about. The landlord had no idea what was happening. He couldn't understand. He could hardly speak English either. That was, uh, that was another complication. And all this is a matter of fact and is now on the record. You can read about it in the most minuscule detail about the case I'm talking about on Freedom Party's website. And you know what, Robert? Uh, recently, the entire trial transcript has just been um, uh, made in available electronically, and it's going to be available online too. Excellent. I mean, everybody's going to see every embarrassing thing that was said in that courtroom. So you can see how, how I've led in. I went through the same process with the Cosby issue. Uh, once I got that list of 30 allegers that I found on Slate.com, I went to each one and I compiled what is still an, a growing list. It's almost 100 pages long, a single text file, of all 30, now 31 allegers, uh, and compared them and, and looked at the larger context of their stories. And the story I found in each of their cases, thus far, I've done, we've done, what, about a third of them on the show so far, and we haven't found anyone that we could consider to be all that serious an alleger, but certainly they become, they make more sense when you start thinking about this new term coming in, affirmative consent. One of the ones I wanted to get to earlier was uh, number 27 on Slate.com's list. Her name's Catherine McKee. And she, her story again appeared in an exclusive in another one of these um, um, tabloids. And it says, exclusive, Bill Cosby accused of raping ex-girlfriend of Sammy Davis Jr. Catherine McKee, 65, told the Daily News that Cosby raped her in a Michigan hotel room in the early 70s when she was on tour with Davis. She said she never told Davis about the alleged sexual assault. In addition, model Chloe Goines, 24, claims Cosby drugged and sexually assaulted her inside the Playboy Mansion in 2008 by Nancy Dillon, New York Daily News. That was all the headline I just read. Now, of course, we already looked at Chloe Goines. She, complete fake, complete fake, already dismissed. Cosby has already demonstrated he wasn't at the Playboy Mansion when she said he was, and he has proof to the, to the opposite of that. But she was the most recent one. But McKee, her story was released as an exclusive in the New York Daily News on December 22nd, along with Chloe Goines, who we've dismissed, completely fabricated her allegations. She was the one that, that accused Cosby of toe-sucking. Okay. Now, she alleges Cosby raped her in a Michigan hotel room in the early 70s when she's on tour with Davis, Sammy Davis Jr. Now, here's how, this is the story itself. McKee, an actress and former Vegas showgirl, said she partied regularly with Davis's notorious Rat Pack in the late 1960s and had known Cosby for eight years when the alleged assault took place. Back then, she says, I was Sammy's road wife. He had an open marriage, and we were lovers. That's how it went, McKee told Daily News. So he's got a wife at home, and she, she's the road wife, I guess. I don't know how that works. McKee said Cosby asked her to get some ribs from a local hotspot checker barbecue and then pick him up at his hotel. I remember I walked in the door, and he had a robe and cap on. He took the ribs from my hands and just grabbed me, McKee said. He spun me round, pulled my panties down, and just took it. He took the ribs from my hands and just grabbed me. 
He spun, uh, or, and then, then she goes, McKee said she never uttered a peep to Davis about what actually happened, Sammy Davis. I didn't want to put that in Sammy's head, McKee said. I'm wondering why, considering that this is an open marriage. Isn't, isn't that how it works? But maybe I don't understand that. And here, here is the telltale sign. She's saying this. I was mad at my own self for, saying, for not saying, what the F? Why didn't I stop it and get him away from me? But it happened too fast, and I had the guilt. I had to question myself, why did I go there? It was a rape, but it seemed so strange to call it that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, too. It's <laughs> very strange. And you know why she didn't call anybody? Quote, I chalked it up to another powerful person in Hollywood who just felt he could take what he wanted from women, end quote. So I'm sitting here thinking, well, if that's what you did and what you thought, then like it or not, I'm sorry, you consented. Isn't that consent? Even if it's not, even if she didn't explicitly say yes, she went along with it, she didn't stop it, and she didn't regret it until later. And now is coming forth, uh, get this, half a century later, bringing it, bringing it out as a story. You know, and, and it happened too fast. So had the attack not been too fast, if it had lasted 15 minutes or so, might she have objected at that point? If I, it I, happened at I, all. At all. I, again, thank you, Robert, because we're working from, all I've got to work from here in any case is these allegations, right? I've got nothing else to go on. And so I have to take them for what they are. We're working in the court of public opinion, not pretending to know anything beyond what we know that we can read right here. But her admitted guilt about an alleged incident that happened almost half a century ago, and which appears very consensual, though not affirmative consensual, does not constitute <laughs> a legitimate allegation of any, any kind about anything or anybody else. And, you know, this made me think, too. Remember, uh, speaking of affirmative consent, remember Carla Ferrigno? She was added to the alleged list based strictly on a half-century-old kiss at a party. That was it. Cosby, you know, now I understand why she's on the list, because Cosby didn't ask her verbally, and she didn't say yes verbally, according to her story. Hence, under affirmative consent principle, it would be considered sexual assault, and that's probably how they're looking at it. So, you know, when they change the words on you and all these definitions start changing around you, um, all of a sudden you might not understand what the world you live in is, is like anymore. It's not that they're changing the words, Bob. I think it's that they're destroying a concept. They're destroying a concepts. concept that's at least as old as the Magna Carta, about 800 years old, actually 800 years old this year. Um, consent. Yes. All of a sudden these uh, junior anti-sex league people come along with affirmative consent. It's a destruction of a concept. I agree with you. And you know, last week... <clears throat> We played that chilling outtake from the 1984 TV series, The Twilight Zone. Remember Mm, that one? Yes. Featuring comedian Robert Klein in a very serious and compelling role as a man named Bill, who slowly discovers that the meanings of simple words are suddenly changing around him. A breed of dog is called an encyclopedia. An anniversary becomes a throw rug. (laughs) And everybody around him, including his wife, when he arrives home, is suddenly using the word dinosaur in place of the word lunch. And even just those one or two or three simple words start driving the guy crazy, right? And uh, I was thinking if it was an episode of the Flintstones, it might have been perfectly consistent because I watched one and they were having dinosaur for lunch. (laughs) (laughs) But of course... Poor Bill, his story doesn't end there. Eventually, things around him change so dramatically that virtually every word becomes gibberish to him. 
no one even calls him Bill anymore. Instead, they call him Hinge. That ends up being his name, right? Now, if ever there was a lesson on the nature of epistemology and the importance of clear definitions and meanings, this Twilight Zone episode was it. Now, I'm going to play that continuation of that story, but I couldn't resist leaving the narrator's tag on this continuation of Bill's horrifying Twilight Zone experience. Given the context of, of our discussion, the double entendre in what he says at the end has a very interesting relevance to our topic, and we'll be back after this. Man, the Dodgers tea-leafed the Giants last night. They almost lost it, too. If Sachs hadn't hit that luggage run home in the ninth. Culture, Bill. Oh, I'm a saddle desert Streisand fan anyway, but her son movies absolutely candles. Reason. Egotype is clogged. Dill popular Ben Regal Day climbed Titan only cattle spark Western pottery. A Yankee home. Hinge? Well, in the iris. Regal Day climb. Huh? Timber, Hinge. Big torch the zoom this carload whistle. Use Metro Panther call, Blade. Hinge? A question trembles in the silence. Why did this remarkable thing happen to this perfectly ordinary man? It may not matter why the world shifted so drastically for him. Existence is slippery at the best of times. What does matter is that Bill Lowry isn't ordinary. He's one of us, a man determined to prevail in the world that was, in the world that is, or the world that will be in the Twilight Zone. This is Mike Wallace with another television portrait from our gallery of colorful people. Throughout the United States, small pockets of intellectuals have become involved in a new and unusual philosophy which would seem to strike at the very roots of our society. The fountainhead of this philosophy is a novelist, Ayn Rand, whose two major works, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, have been bestsellers. Down through history, various political and philosophical movements have sprung up, but most of them have died. Some, however, like democracy or communism, take hold and affect the entire world. Here in the United States, perhaps the most challenging and unusual new philosophy has been forged by a novelist, Ayn Rand. As Rand's point of view is still comparatively unknown in America, but if it ever did take hold, it would revolutionize our lives. Who are you, Ayn Rand? When I say that, I would like to know just a little bit uh, of, of your vital statistics. You have an accent which is... Russian. Russian. You were born in Russia? Yes. Came here? Oh, about 30 years ago. And whence did this philosophy of yours come? Uh, out of my own mind, with the sole acknowledgement of a debt to Aristotle, who is the only philosopher that ev ever influenced me. Uh -huh. I devised the rest of my philosophy myself. Your parents, did they die in Russia, or did they come here to the United States? No, I came here alone, and I don't know. I have no way of finding out whether they died or not. You are married? Yes. Your husband, is he an industrialist? No, he's an artist. His name is Frank O'Connor. 
And he, not the paints. writer? He no, paints. not the writer. And uh, does he live from his painting? He's just beginning to study painting. He I was see. a designer before. Is he supported uh, in his efforts by the, uh, by the state? Most certainly not. He's supported by you for the time being? Uh, no, by his own work, actually, in the past. Well, I know... By me, if necessary, but that isn't quite necessary. And there is no, there is no uh, contradiction here in that, in that you help him. No, because you see, I am in love with him selfishly. It is to my own interest to help him if he ever needed it. I do, would not call that a sacrifice because I take selfish pleasure in it. And that was a Mike Wallace interview of Ayn Rand. I think he did that back in 1957, quite a long time ago. But uh, do you see what he did there, Bob? This oh, wasn't he was an putting her under attack. I'm going, what, what exactly. kind of interview was that? This yeah. isn't so much an interview asking her about objectivism or her about her novels. This was an interview to deliberately undermine her as a person. It was an ad hominem attack, at least this part of the interview. They do, they do go on later on to talk mm. about objectivism. He asks about her husband. What does your husband do? He's a painter. Does he make a living from his painting? Yes, he. well, he makes a living. He supports himself from when he was a designer. Uh, do you support him? No, although I would if it was necessary, but it's not necessary. So then what does he say? Well, isn't there a contradiction here? A contradiction of what? She just said she doesn't support him, right? Yeah, it doesn't even make sense. It's, it's, it's like he had his questions ready before he heard her answers and wasn't expecting those answers or something yeah. like that. But the whole point was that he wanted to undermine her. Ayn Rand, he wanted to find some sort of contradiction in her personal behavior with her um, principles uh, as exposed in uh, objectivism, some sort of contradiction. And we hear that all the time. And just recently, I came across, um, well, actually, a few weeks ago, or a couple of months ago, you posted um, or used as clips a, uh, a joke about Ayn Rand. Um, I think it was the Ayn Rand private access show or something like that. It was actually quite humorous. Well, it was funny. It was over the top. Yeah. That's what made it humorous. It was a caricature of Ayn Rand so that we knew that it wasn't necessarily a joke about her and her philosophy because it was characteristic. Uh, yes, and, and if you took some of her ideas literally the way they did, yes. it could come across that way. Actually, and they I, didn't take them literally because well, they obviously didn't read right No, no, but, but I mean the attitudes that you hear about, you know, but by, yeah. by emphasizing, there's a word for that, I can't think of it, and it's not just sarcasm, it's something. Well, it was out of context, yeah. the whole thing was. But it was funny, very funny stuff. No, but did you ever hear the joke about Plato or Socrates? No. How about the one about <laughs> Hegel and Spinoza? No. <laughs> With the exception of Monty Python, I can't say I know too many humorists or comedians who make up jokes featuring philosophers like Ayn Rand, possibly because your typical Westerner couldn't name a single philosopher if their life depended on it. Philosophy as such is an unknown field, especially to Americans, that when the publisher released J.K. Rowling's book Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone in the United States, did you know that they had to change the name to Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone? Is because that right? yeah, their focus group said that they didn't understand what a philosopher was, but they knew about sorcery, so they changed. They actually changed the name to Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone for the American release of the book and the movie. That's practically an indictment of our society. I don't know. It's sad. Hmm. Why then would the New Yorker print the stand-up comedy routine of comic John Hodgman entitled "Ask Ein"? Back in 2013, uh, Ju- July 29th, 2013 issue of the New Yorker, wherein Hodgman takes jabs at Rand in a particularly unfunny way. 
uh, quite frankly, it's a second-rate humor from a, a mediocre comedian. And here's just a couple examples of his cutting wit, where he pretends to be quoting Rand. So this is him quoting Rand, and it's not actually a real quote. I have cut my fingers trying to open a can of Fresca. What are they, made of Reardon metal? (laughs) (laughs) I am joking, because I am not joyless. What is your favorite joke, readers? Write me and let me know. Okay. Not too bad. Not as good as that other private access week. Uh, Here's another one. This week, you may have seen that I was interviewed by Phil Donahue of the television program Donahue. Some thought fireworks would fly, and it's true that Donahue is a collectivist and an apologist for the week, but if you detected that I liked him, you were correct. I cannot help it. He he has a good sense of humor, and his hair is so snowy and silly. During a break, I turned to him and said, I think you should tell your wife, Marlo Thomas, to rename her long-playing record, Free to Be Only Me. We laughed and laughed. Eh. I'm not laughing. There's a touch of truth to that. I know that... that she was Phil, interviewed on Phil Donahue. She was, and he, she actually he's liked from the him. left, and she liked him exactly. because she considered him um, honest as an intellectual, um, somebody who would question her. You yes. know? And he always asked good questions, and he let her say what she had to say. And so I used to like watching Phil Donahue, too. It was a good sure. show. Yeah, no, he was uh, he was a good uh, he ended uh, up supporting the Green Party with Ralph Nader. Can you imagine? <laughs> oh well, <laughs> he can't be perfect. Rand had this to say about humorous attacks on a person: "Humor is not an uncontrolled virtue," he says. "Its moral character depends on its object. To laugh at the contemptible is a virtue. To laugh at the good is a hideous vice. Too often." Humor is used as the camouflage of moral cowardice. She was right. It's as if she had read Hodgman's article or watched any other humor which attacks her personally for being successful. There's another interview out there where she's interviewed by Tom Snyder, and she asks him personally. She says, have you ever been attacked for your success? And he says, yes. And he says, it's because of your virtues that they're attacking you. And she called it, Attack of the good for being the good. That was another, uh, an interesting, a very well done uh, interview uh, just before she died, a few years before she died. It took me a while to wrap my head around that concept when she first uh, bounced that one on me. You mm-hmm. know, the idea of attacking the good for being good. I go, what are you talking about, right? And then, yeah. then you realize, oh, ah, okay, now it's making sense. You know? It's uh, jealousy is what it is. It's um, a deep-seated envy of some people so they make it become hate. You're good, I'm not, therefore I hate you. At least that, that is an element of I think. An element. I don't know if it's the motivation, though. I, I still haven't got quite around that yet. I think it even goes deeper than that. Yeah, well, ways. Rand would say the motivation comes from Immanuel Kant, who basically said that um, nothing is good. Your, your mind is ineffectual. You cannot uh, discern reality. Reality is uh, the noumenal, which is beyond our comprehension. I, I, I think it comes more, more, if I can put it this way, more from a desire to be able to remain subjective in your outlook and not be disciplined by objectivity and reality. Mm. People reject reality and objectivity in so many parts of their life to their own, you know, to their own dismay at the end, and I think that might be part of what it is. Yeah, you could be right. Well, anyway, in any case, I posted the New York piece on uh, Facebook, uh, from the New Yorker piece on Facebook, and received some very interesting comments. Here's one of them. Jeffrey wrote, quote, I'm sorry I had to read that. Just another case of destroying the good for being the good. 
Clearly, this writer and the New Yorker could not live in a world where Rand's ideas were not ridiculed and misrepresented. In their twisted minds, they nevertheless clearly identified that it was either her or them, since nature abhors the vacuous. Now that line is actually particularly funny. Thank you, Jeffrey. Most of the comments con- uh, concurred with me that it was, uh, wasn't particularly funny, and Hodgman and his uh, ilk are simply attacking what they clearly do not understand, and that frightens them. But this comment from noted Toronto talk show host and comedian in his own right, John Moore, who has a show on CFRB 1010, uh, brought a few of his lefty friends into the conversation. He commented, quote, Rand is fair game. She was a complete nutter, unquote. Now, I'm not sure that he was saying that she was fair game because she was a best-selling author and a renowned philosopher, or that uh, she was fair game because he thinks that she was a complete nutter. Any notable celebrity like Rand is fair game for criticism, but calling her a nutter and leaving at that only lets me know that Rand's philosophy is catching on and those who she spoke out against, i.e. the irrational, the megalomaniacs, and those who would benefit from force, are so afraid of her that an ad hominem attack is all they can come up with. She's a nutter. Well, well thank not, you, John Moore. Just, it's not just fear. It's not having an argument against her. That's right, period. Yeah. Well... They don't have why not just say, look it, she's wrong about this and she's wrong about this. Like They're intellectually per- lazy. Wow. They don't want to read her philosophy. They don't want to read her books and find out and understand and then, then criticize. Please do. Now, often Rand is criticized not for her philosophy, but for the behavior of some of her characters in, the, in her books, which are not her. The fictional characters, right, of yes, course. You yeah. know? Mm-hmm. So why is she a nutter, uh, John Moore? What specifically did she say or do that would lead one to believe that she was not sane? as the word nutter implies. <laughs> Why do you call Rand a nutter and sing the praises of philosophers and so-called intellectuals like Noam Chomsky or Karl Marx or Immanuel Kant, whose philosophies are responsible for millions of deaths and the privation and misery of countless billions? No, instead you take on Ayn Rand, who only asked that we abolish force from society. Yeah, holy cow. This is bizarre. That, that's a nutty idea. <laughs> <laughs> Rand was indeed a guest on the Phil Donahue show and actually did admire him very much. The Donahue interviews, as well as the interviews we heard a moment ago by Mike Wallace, are available on YouTube, but let's actually listen to a part of one of the uh, Donahue interviews now. Can I ask you to capsulize your philosophy? What is Randism? Uh, First of all, I do not call it Randism, and I don't like that name. I call it objectivism. All right. Meaning, a philosophy based on objective reality. Now, let me explain it as briefly as I can. First, my philosophy is based on the concept that reality exists as an objective absolute. That man's mind, reason, is his means of perceiving it. And that man needs a rational morality. I am primarily the creator of a new code of morality which has so far been believed impossible, namely, a morality not based on faith. On faith. Not on faith, not on arbitrary whim, not on emotion, not on arbitrary edict, mystical or social, but on reason, a morality which can be proved by means of logic, which can be demonstrated to be true and necessary. All right, all right. Now, may I define what my morality is? All right. Because this is merely an introduction. My morality is based on man's life 
as a standard of value. And since man's mind is his basic means of survival, I hold that if man wants to live on earth and to live as a human being, he has to hold reason as an absolute, by which I mean that he has to hold reason as his only guide to action and that he must live by the independent judgment of his own mind, that his highest moral purpose is the achievement of his own happiness, and that he must not force other people nor accept their right to force him, that each man must live as an end in himself and follow his own rational self-interest. You put this philosophy to work in your novel Atlas Shrugged. That's right. You demonstrate it in, in human terms in your novel Atlas Shrugged. And let me start by quoting from a review of this novel Atlas Shrugged that appeared in Newsweek. It said that you are out to destroy almost every edifice in the contemporary American way of life, our Judeo-Christian religion, our modified government-regulated capitalism, our rule by the majority will. Other reviews have said that you scorn churches and the concept of God. Are these accurate criticisms? Uh, yes. I agree with the facts, but not the estimates of this criticism. Namely, if I am challenging the base of all these institutions, I'm challenging the moral code of altruism, the precept that man's moral duty is to live for others, that man must sacrifice himself to others, which is the present-day morality. What do you Since mean by I sacrifice himself for others? This now we're moment, getting to the point. One moment. Since I'm challenging the base, I necessarily would challenge the institutions you named, which are a result of that morality. All right. And now what is self-sacrifice? Yes, what is self-sacrifice? You say that you do not like the altruism by which we live. You, you like a certain kind of Ayn Randist selfishness. I uh, would say that I don't like is too weak a word. I consider it evil. And uh, self-sacrifice is the precept that man needs to serve others in order to justify his existence, that his moral duty is to serve others. That is what most people believe today. Well, yes, we're taught to feel concerned for our fellow man, to feel responsible for his welfare, to feel that we are, as religious people uh, might put it, children under God and responsible one for the other. Now, why do you rebel? What's wrong with this philosophy? But that is what, uh, in fact, makes man a sacrificial animal. That man must work for others, concern himself with others, or be responsible for them. That is the role of a sacrificial object. I say that man is entitled to his own happiness and that he must achieve it himself, but that he cannot demand that others give up their lives to make him happy. I and am. nor should he wish to sacrifice himself for the happiness of others. I hold that man should have self-esteem. I am very pleased to present a woman. I, uh, there have been a number of people who have said, uh, you're going to, I know many of you have heard this line, Atlas Shrugged changed my life. The Fountainhead changed my life. Uh, here's a woman who's read by millions around the world. She may be our most debated uh, philosopher, 
She identifies that to which she adheres as objectivism. We'll talk about it. We care very much about your sharing with us your feelings about this most interesting lady, a warm human being who has a lot to say and comes straight at everything she says. I am pleased to present Ayn Rand. Okay. Ayn Rand is here, and it's about time we said hello after hearing so much about you. And you're not really altogether that available to the media. I know you've done, you do a radio show, and there have been other occasions. But let's see what I can do here now in trying to help the world I'm understand. Those who may not be as familiar with your work. You don't go for altruism and charity and do good and liberal and... Yes. No. And conservative. You might as well add it all. You don't like the conservatives either? No. Well, Not today's start. conservatives. All right. uh, I want to help people. I want to do good for other people. What's so bad about that? Nothing. If you do it by your own choice, and if it's not your primary aim in life, and if you don't regard it as a moral virtue, on those conditions, it's fine to help people if you want to. Why, isn't, why can't I think of it as a moral virtue? I mean, can't I take some vows for myself for doing all these good things? Because that would be cannibalism. Because that would mean that you preach altruism, which means not merely kindness, but self-sacrifice. It means that you place the welfare of others above your own. That you live for others, for the sake of helping them, and that justifies your life. That's immoral according to my morality. Uh, I don't understand why you have to be so harsh in your, def in your evaluation of those people. Why, why call it immoral? Why don't you just say, why, why don't you say it's a waste of time? Why, why pass judgment on me? Because look at the state of the world today. Yeah. And you cannot be harsh enough on those who created it. And those who created it are the philosophers of altruism. It's those who preach self-sacrifice, selflessness, self-abnegation, all the anti-self theories, which means anti-man. All those who demand man's sacrifice, they have succeeded, and yeah. look at the results in the world. That's a, that's a theory or a way of life or an, a philosophic idea which is, which is advanced by religions, that we should sacrifice for others. That's right. All right. I want to make sure I understand you, Ms. Rand. Why is it so... I'm still not quite sure why you're so harsh on those who would sacrifice for other people. Because I look at them. Just look at them. Because they are... They don't hesitate to sacrifice whole nations. Uh, look at Russia. Communism is based on altruism. Look at Nazi Germany. The Nazis were more explicit than even the Russians in preaching self-sacrifice and altruism and self-sacrifice for the state, for the folk, the people. Every dictatorship is based on altruism. Now you can't fight it by merely saying it's a difference of opinion, it's a difference of life and death. Your, so your view is then with, if we all became more comfortable which, with our natural uh, tendencies, that is to say, selfishness, there would be less horror, less war, less Hitler? There wouldn't be any. So with the more selfish we are, the more kind, the, the, the more tranquil and peaceful the world in which we live? And more benevolent toward other people, if we're rationally selfish. By that I mean a selfishness which can justify once every action 
rationally, not the kind of whim worship, as I call it, which consists of just indulging your own desires and but urges of the moment. So that was one of the uh, Phil Donahue interviews, and before that we listened to another part of the Mike Wallace interview from 1957 or about that time. You know, there are other videos on YouTube featuring Rand, which, uh, including a half-hour interview Professor James McConnell of the University of Michigan, and one by Tom Snyder, which I mentioned before. Um, I would encourage you to seek out uh, these videos, although even watching these videos, you'll only come away with a superficial view of Rand's philosophy of objectivism, which is a very technical subject and would require a serious course of study and, and, and many, many hours and hours and hours of reading and studying and trying to understand. Now, while anyone can be a critic of her literature, Atlas Shrugged, Fountainhead, We the Living, etc., I've yet to see one reputable critique or critique of Rand's philosophy of objectivism. Any criticism takes the form usually of insults based on an ignorance of both Rand herself as a person and her enlightened philosophy. Just a while ago, I remember I compared, I mean, why Rand when you have all these other philosophers out there like Karl Marx, like Immanuel Kant, like John Dewey, um, whose educational philosophy has destroyed the minds of millions. Instead, they pick on Ayn Rand. Truth is, most of her critics haven't the first clue about objectivism. It is a comprehensive philosophy spanning all five branches of that particular area of study, which one cannot fully grasp by reading an article in The New Yorker or watching a YouTube video spoofing her Russian accent. I have read perhaps more Rand than the vast majority of people in society and cannot find fault with anything she's written regarding her philosophy. She is perhaps the most meticulous thinker that has lived in recent times, and that scares people. Her critics point out that her atheism, which derives both from objectivist metaphysics, that existence exists, and her epistemology, that the senses are valid perceivers of what reality is, and that reason is man's only means of knowledge, religion, the supernatural, divine revelation, conflict with objectivism. So the conservative right wing despise Ayn Rand on that basis. Objectivist ethics center around rational self-interest, being the standard by which behavior should conform. This upsets the liberals and the socialists who rely on society and the state as being the standard for morality. Both the left and the right rail against her use of rational self-interest as being the standard for her behavior and deliberately try to confuse their audiences by leaving out Rand's distinction between rational self-interest and the hedonistic whim worship which Rand considered to be immoral. Libertarians and anarchists hate Rand because she even has a code of ethics, which, when of course, libertarians and anarchists don't think that they need anyone to tell them how to behave, and that behavior has any limits, either socially or personally. There is no standard of behavior when it comes to libertarians and anarchists. The usual jokes and criticisms about her, uh, her politics being laissez-faire capitalism come from people who would rather have a government which initiates force, which is initiator of force on its citizens. It is supposed to protect, while capitalism, as properly defined by Rand, would abolish the initiation of force in society. Now, what could possibly be wrong with eliminating force, fraud, and coercion in the world? 
It's only wrong to someone who benefits from such force, fraud, and coercion. Typically liberals, conservatives, socialists, communists, fascists, and bureaucrats. Rand's philosophy is a philosophy for living life on this earth. It's rooted in Aristotelian philosophy. It's rational. It's a philosophy of peace. It defines man and his role in society and his responsibility to his own nature. It's a defendable philosophy which has yet to see any reasoned intellectual criticism. Ignorance is not an argument, so if, like John Moore, you wish to label someone of Rand's stature and influence a nutter, you'd better be prepared to back up such a ludicrous statement or risk having your own insult returned in kind. In the Tom Snyder interview, Snyder says to Rand that, quote, There are many people in this world who think you are daft, unquote. Her response? They don't. They want you to think that. I'd agree. Oh, brilliant, Ender. And that's it for this week. Join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. When was this building built? Here when I got here. Probably about 1920. It has that strong, clean, functional line of that period. It's real. Genuine. Not like that Cortland across the street. What was that? Nothing. You have the time. Excuse me. Listen, Spear has an unusual interest in the time. So? Well, it's almost like he's got something planned. Like what? When he first came in, he said a few things that sounded familiar. Just now he mentioned Cortland. Keep going. Cortland was the name of the building in the Fountainhead. Novel by Ayn Rand. Oh, yeah. Remember Patricia Neal wore that, that gown with the, with the fur? Yeah, yeah. Remember Gary Cooper played the architect who blows up his own building? 